The Eternal Space is a two-man play that tells the story of an unlikely friendship that develops during the demolition of the old New York Penn Station during the mid-1960s. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Joining me today is the Eternal Space playwright and producer, Justin Rivers, and producer, Dennis McCarthy. Who would like to describe the premise of the play? Uh, I guess I should do that. Uh, this is Justin. Um, the premise of the play is uh, two men who are probably polar opposites of each other who have a chance meeting on the first day of Pennsylvania Station's demolition in 1963. Uh, from there, their relationship unravels as uh, one of the men uh, is a teacher who's trying to keep the station standing by protesting against its demolition. And uh, the other gentleman uh, is a younger guy, a photographer just starting out in life, who's also uh, a construction worker taking the station down at the same time. Uh, so initially they meet and sort of butt heads on their opposite opinions. But as time goes by and the demolition goes through its three year process, uh, they develop, as you had uh, mentioned, an unlikely friendship. So the English teacher is named Joseph Lanza. Yes, Joseph uh, Lanzarone, actually. Lanzarone. Yep. And the construction worker is Paul Abbott. Paul what, Abbott. What is the relationship like between these two? You said they're butting heads in the beginning. How are they butting heads? Uh, so uh, Joseph shows up as uh, a protester trying to stop Penn's demolition, and he's hanging up signs all over the main waiting room. Uh, Paul, being a construction worker, uh, has to take the signs down, and that's how they initially meet. And so they immediately engage in an argument. Uh, as Joseph is in his late 50s and Paul is in his uh, early 30s, uh, Paul's mentality is get rid of the station. It's old. It's dirty. Let's build something new. Let's get Madison Square Garden in. Um, Joseph's opinion is, no, 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 we need to hold on to what's important to us. This was a beautiful piece of architecture. If we get rid of it, what are we saying about buildings and architecture and culture in our city? Um, and so that they immediately lock horns over that. So with me sitting in the audience, I'm an audience member, what does it look like? What does the set look like to me? So the set is actually very interesting. Um, initially, when I first wrote the show, the intention was for uh, the actual demolition photography to serve as the background. And in my head, I just pictured a huge screen behind the guys uh, and the demolition photography creating the setting. Well, what happened is I have a very, very, very talented creative crew who signed on when we did the off-Broadway run. And what the set designer has done, um, actually scenic designer, um, they've built a mock Penn Station room that is all projectionable surface. So what they're doing is, is they're taking over 2,500 photographs that we've collected of Penn Station and Penn's demolition, and they're actually splicing them together to build the rooms through projections on the set. Um, so am I seeing like flashing of pictures or? It's going to be a combination of all types of multimedia. There'll be video. Um, so there's going to be uh, video news broadcasts. There's going to be radio broadcasts. Oh. There's going to be flashing pictures from Paul's collection as he's taking pictures. But then the room itself, when they are set in a room during the scene, will also be built using photos. Justin, how did you find the pictures and all the footage? Uh, so when I, I wrote the show years ago, um, and the initial inspiration was uh, by from a photographer by the name of Peter Moore. And uh, Peter Moore's wife posthumously published a book called uh, The Destruction of Penn Station, which was his collection of uh, Penn demolition photos from 1963 to 1966. And 
uh, through doing further research for the show, I found that there were quite a few photographers who actually had uh, pen demolition uh, catalogs. And just by researching and calling these guys up, uh, finding out where some of their collections were, if they were no longer alive, I was able to find five different photographers, all who had very uh, robust um, pen demolition uh, catalogs. So, Dennis, what made you sign on to uh, this project, The Eternal Space? Um, well, I met Justin um, 15, 16 years ago at, here at Fordham. We were both heavily involved at the Rose Hill campus in theater. Justin was involved in the FET theater program, which is Fordham Experimental Theater. And I was upstairs in Collins at the Mimes and Mummers. And we did a few projects together and uh, created sort of a... We all, Fordham Theater at Rose Hill, created a network that we're still all very tight and keep in touch and work together on a lot of our projects that we all have. Um, when was your first reading, Justin? Oh, yeah, the, fir the very first reading was in 2004. Right. So, you know, I, I would go to those readings and support it. And from the moment I, I heard the play, I just loved it. I loved the history. I loved the brains behind it. Because um, it sounds a lot like, you know, old New York, new, new New York, but it's continuously even going on today that you have right. this sort of like old New York and you have the historians who sort of want to keep it going. And then you sort of have some of these people who want to move in and say, oh, out with the old and in with the new. Exactly. And, and New York is always changing. That's what I think makes New York so incredible. Um, I had always heard about the old Penn Station. My family, I'm from New York. I'm originally from Long Island. My father's from Long Island and he always described arriving at Penn Station on his way to go up to Yankee games. And he would describe <laughs> the grandness of Penn Station. And, uh, you know, I never experienced that coming in a Long Island Railroad <laughs> terminal in the 1980s. L-I-R-R, -R, a little bit different. <laughs> I did discover the grandness of Grand Central when I was here at Fordham, the first time I took the Metro North down. And it was just after the restoration of Grand Central um, in the late 90s. And coming off the platform and walking into that grand entrance hall, it was... I had never been in there. It was the first time I was ever in there as an 18-year-old, and it really, really impressed me. Uh, yeah, aren't they both sort of the old Penn Station and, and Grand Central? They're sort of that same bow art, I believe? Bow's art, Bow's yeah. Arts, yeah. yeah. Bow's oh. arts. I would say that Penn Station, from the pictures I've seen, um, was grander, actually, yeah. than, yeah. than It was also Grand double Central's. the size. Of well, Grand for those Central. of us who are not from New York, kind of help me visualize what it looked like, old Penn Station. So Old Penn Station was modeled after uh, quite a few different European um, monuments. The uh, president and the architects uh, who were hired by the Pennsylvania Railroad at the turn of the century did a six-month tour of Europe. And uh, they were very, very inspired by the Roman Baths of Caracalla, which people may remember from the Three Tenors concert in 1990. That's actually where the Three Tenors concert took place. Um, so these grand columns, these vaulted ceilings that are 140 feet in the air, um, Doric and Ionic columns all over the building, uh, which then led into what was, I've never seen anything like it before or since, but uh, a huge beehive, very modern at the time, glass roof concourse. And the glass roof was um, tremendously high. Uh, and it led in an amazing amount of light. So you were inside a room, but you felt like you were standing outside the whole time. In pictures, you just see these people waiting for trains on the concourse, and it looks like they're standing outside. Um, so it 
there was never anything like that before or since in New York. Uh, Grand Central used to be, before they had redone it at the turn of the century to the Grand Central we know and love today, used to just be a train shed on 42nd Street. Um, they replaced it with what we have now, which is obviously gorgeous. But Penn Station actually had both. It had the uh, grand waiting room and the train shed component to it. Um, and it was the largest train station in the world and one of the largest public spaces in the world at the time. So why destroy it? Uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad went bankrupt uh, in the 1950s after the war. We have the interstate highway system. We have air travel. And also the war itself uh, helped to bankrupt and wear down Pennsylvania Station. Pennsylvania Railroad never recovered financially uh, from the loss of ridership due to all of the modern conveniences of travel. And uh, they couldn't afford it. Uh, Penn Station fell into disrepair in the 50s, and by the early 60s, it was considered to be very dirty, um, a little seedy and dangerous, even though it was a gorgeous building. Um, it started getting a reputation of being uh, worn down and old. Uh, unsafe and old. Unsafe and old, right. And this was in the mid-60s? Uh, it was early, late 50s, early 60s. By 61, Pennsylvania Railroad had already signed the deal to sell the air rights to Madison Square Garden. So by 62, they had announced it was going to be demolished. So they just, by 58 to 61, they just let the place go. They didn't do a thing to it. And this question is for either uh, Dennis or Justin. What's the connection between the destruction of the old Penn Station and the movement towards historical preservation? Well, I think that after the destruction of Penn Station, it created a conversation, especially in New York, about how we need to preserve buildings. Uh, soon after, within the decade, um, there was talk of taking down Grand Central Station. Uh, and former Mayor Koch was a huge advocate to, to keep it and maintain the building. Um, and it was not an easy battle. I know that he did get uh, a very powerful New Yorker behind him, uh, Jackie Kennedy Onatsis, who helped spearhead that preservation of Grand Central. We have her to thank for that building still being standing. But now look at us. We're, we're talking of a, a total new restoration of a new Penn Station where we're going to be going into the old building, the um, the, the, the post office awesome. on 8th Avenue. So it's, it's listen, we, we go from old to new and back to old restoration. <laughs> yes. Which is actually what's, there's a line in the play where Paul says that. He says, you know, Somebody will come and take it down and build something new, and somebody will come sometime later and take that down, and it's a cycle. It'll happen all over again. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking about the play The Eternal Space with playwright and producer Justin Rivers and producer Dennis McCarthy. It tells the story of an unlikely friendship that develops during the demolition of Penn Station during the mid-1960s. Justin, you uh, wrote The Eternal Space over a decade ago. What was your motivation to write it? What inspired you? Uh, I know it always sounds odd, but uh, it was 9-11. Um, really? Yes. Uh, I was a graduate fresh out of Fordham uh, on September 11, 2001, and I had taken a teaching job on the Lower East Side. And so my fourth day of school ever was 9-11. And I was very close. And uh, that whole entire experience sort of, as it did for many people in the country, it sort of moved in and, you know, set up shop in my psyche. And uh, I had moved out to Brooklyn, was on the F train. And uh, every day the F train 
when I took it goes elevated for a couple stops and you could see lower Manhattan and the building's gone really in, uh, I can't describe it. It, it had an effect on me um, because Manhattan skyline was so forever changed by it. And then when I found Peter Moore's book about five months after 9-11, I Peter said, Moore's you know, book? Peter Moore's book, The Destruction of Penn Station, mm -hmm. the initial inspiration for the show. Um, I said, you know, I wonder if New Yorkers felt this way when Penn Station was taken from them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, do buildings sort of set up homes in our emotional landscapes? And how do we feel about them when they're gone? Is it almost like a friend dying or a family member? Um, so I wondered if it was the same process for somebody losing Penn Station as the process was uh for us losing the World Trade Center. And so that's where the initial inspiration started. Um, and then it grew into a much deeper fascination with why, why did we lose Penn Station when we had such a beautiful building? Uh, there's such a dramatic theme from taking something so gorgeous and replacing it with something um, so awful. I think it's the best way to say it. <laughs> and train stations throughout the world yeah. are the grandest buildings in these cities. Of course. You know, if you, even if you go down to Washington, D.C., when you get off the yeah, Union. Union Station is gorgeous. I was right. just in Budapest, Budapest and the, the train station in Budapest is, talk about a glass ceiling, absolutely stunning. Um, so it's, it is important. It's the first thing that so many people do see when they arrive to New York. How long did the whole process take from, from you know, the, the second you got off the train asking yourself these questions to that, that finished product? Well, uh, the Eternal Space had many finished products, but um, <laughs> the one that we are going to see uh, in this run, uh, it's an ever-evolving process. I was working on the script last week in rehearsal, but uh, the, the first initial finished product came about uh, four months after I had begun. And um, immediately I sent it out to a group of friends. Dennis was one of them. Um, we always had a sort of tight-knit group, uh, all Fordham uh, graduates, who when we left Fordham, we had decided we were going to sort of keep on each other to pursue our dreams and our goals. And so at the time, I was still trying to write plays and break out into theater. And um, I got a great amount of feedback from my friends and uh, they inspired me to keep going until I was, as I mentioned, I was teaching and my teaching job just became too much and the, the script lie fallow for about seven years before it was rediscovered again. There are many people with artistic ability, writers, directors, actors, and they can fine tune a project sometimes to death. Yes. So when did you know the eternal space was complete? You were ready to put it on stage? Um, yeah. I knew it was complete when uh, actually, Mindy Cooper, the woman who is directing the show right now, said to me, Justin, I I know that you want to keep tinkering with this uh, into an inch of its life, but it is a really good show and it's time to leave it alone. And I said, OK, I, I needed I needed that outside <laughs> voice to tell me, leave it as it is, because if I had my way, I'd still be st taking scenes out, putting scenes in. We'd still be waiting for, the, for it to be on, on the stage exactly, right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. That's just the way I am with writing. I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. I, it's just, I always think there's something better. And something Justin just mentioned, there's you know this whole core group of, of friends from Fordham that were all heavily involved in Fordham Theater. As Justin said, he went on to teaching, and that took a, over a lot of his time from creative, being creative. 
Um, so many of us have moved on to other careers. Um, and we have um, been very fortunate to have their assistance in this production, whether it's someone who's now in PR, Sarah Zick, right. who's been our PR manager, um, producer and business manager, John Cunningham, also a graduate of Fordham, uh, Jenny Filipazzo, a graduate of Fordham, who was uh, very active in, in filming and helping us do um, uh, short films for our uh, initial campaigns. And it's been great. You know, whether we, we threw a, a cocktail party or a fundraiser and invited 50 to 60 Fordham graduates from our time, they all came and they all supported us, which was really incredible. Dennis, yeah. did you offer any little, you know, uh, hints about tweaking or any advice about, you know what, Justin, maybe we ought to do this this way? Or... I, I did what I always do, and I would just tell Justin stories of, of what I've heard of Penn Station from my old New York family. Yeah. <laughs> and some, some of those lines have might have made it into the play. A couple did, actually, yes. <laughs> And you said the director of the Eternal Spaces is Mindy Cooper. How did she interpret what you wrote for the stage? What parts were her as opposed to what parts were you? It's funny. She took um, she took Joseph's character. Now, I always had a very strong vision of Joseph's character. And he's played by a gentleman by the name of Clyde Baldo, who's been working on Joseph in developmental readings for over three years. And her and Clyde worked together to create such a different version of him that I absolutely love, but I never would have envisioned. Um, okay, can you describe what, what yeah, your I, version is and, and what my her version, version is? was? He was sort of supposed to be this languishing, very um, whimsical, educated professional who comes in and starts lording over this construction worker turned photographer. And um, what they did with Joseph is they made him almost uh, endearingly neurotic. It's very, I don't, I'm not <laughs> describing it well, but he's, it really, he's so much more energetic and alive uh, the way that Mindy and Clyde have interpreted him. And, you know, Mindy's vision for the show when she saw it was, uh, it's not just them in front of photographs. It's them as part of the whole landscape of Penn Station. So she worked very hard with her team to make sure that Penn Station was a character on the stage. For me, initially, it was the two gentlemen in the photos. For Mindy, I think it was very important for her that the history was accurate, that Penn Station was representative in a way that we could uh, bring it out on stage in the space that we had. So I I'm absolutely floored and thrilled with her vision it was beyond what i had envisioned in my mind and there was a piece that i saw where the eternal space was being read i saw it online and the the character the, the english teacher character joseph he seemed like old new york yes like i could see him as one of these quirky interesting guys who's lived in manhattan his whole life yep. When you have this, you know, the, the old and the new when it's coming to Penn Station, because you have the old Penn Station being destroyed for the new. Right. The English teacher is older. Joseph is older than Paul. Right. Did you purposely want to have that contrast of the old and the new, even with the characters? Yeah. To, at the risk of sounding completely just nerdy and uh, <laughs> literarily dorky. I don't even know. We I, love literary dorks. Okay, we, good. I, All right. Yeah. Well, then I'm just, um, I, I'm going to spill the beans. You know, Joseph is the representation of 
what was considered to be valued in old New York, the older times, the more romantic eras, uh, turn of the century, 19th century, early 20th century. His ideals are art and culture and, you know, buildings were meant to be monuments. They're not just supposed to be thrown up uh, modern glass boxes. Um, and uh, Paul's character is meant to be sort of the younger jet set age of the 60s who says, you know what, we don't need this stuff anymore. Let's make it more modern. Let's make it more convenient. We don't need to sort of have these relics of the past hanging around. And there's a very telling conversation between the guys that was very important to me that stuck from the earliest iteration of the show to what will be on stage is, uh, you know, Joseph turns around and says to Paul, your movement is a repercussion of war. You grew up during wartime, and so you don't want to hold on to things that remind you of the past because there's always that fear. Cold War kids, post-World War II kids, there's always that fear it's going to be taken away from them. Paul at that time was born in the early 20th century, and pre-World War I, there was this idea that, you know, we were an unstoppable nation and we led, we had nods to our past. Um, so they are both representatives of those two divergent opinions. And of course, they're meeting in a train station. So one's coming in and one's going out. Um, and there it is. <laughs> and, and there's a fascination with old New York, yeah. I think. Uh, if you go on any of these new websites, BuzzFeed is always having a, a, a link to old photos of New York in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And there's always people looking at it, looking at what the buildings look like. I just heard in WFUV a few nights ago uh, on the anniversary of the, the Great Blackout, they had a great oh. program where they interviewed people in Grand Central Station. Um, what impressed me the most was how different New Yorkers sounded yeah. 40 years ago. Right. The accent is completely different from what we have today. Yep. Um, the, the speed at which uh, they spoke, their interest and what they were concerned about um, compared to the blackout we all lived through you right. know, 15, 12 <laughs> years ago. It was, it was really fascinating to see how much it has changed and how much we have changed. Um, and I think that that is really something you see with the characters in this play. They're not like someone you would run into Penn Station today. It's it's definitely someone you, you, you would imagine both of these gentlemen to be there in the 60s. It, it was grittier then. Yeah. Uh, of course, the, the station was definitely grittier. But even if you watch um, movies set in New York in the 1960s, 70s, and Woody Allen movies or Scorsese movies, you see that New York was a gritty place. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now it's, it's not. Right. Um, so it really has changed tremendously. And we've seen that change in our brief history of being in New York for the past 15 or 20 years. Right. And it's funny. The one real gritty place left in Manhattan is Penn Station. I, one of the things I've been doing in uh, accordance with the show and to promote the show is I, I give uh, tours of Penn Station with the blog on Tap Cities. And uh, we, I initially started doing the tours as a Kickstarter thank you gift to people who uh, backed the show last year during our Kickstarter campaign. And I figured it was going to be a one-off, you know, and maybe mm -hmm. we'd get five or ten people to do it uh, because they believed in the show and they'd do it as a lark. Well, we're 12 tours into it, and we keep selling out. And People I have are coming from all over the world. I have two sold-out tours. tours. Oh, yeah. my gosh. That's yeah. awesome. Um, and I think it speaks a lot to people's fascination with, A, Penn Station, B, one of the last gritty spots left in Manhattan. Um, what makes it so gritty? Uh, I, well, 
be, it's designed to be gritty, basically. You know, they took an entire train station that processes over half a million people a day and they shoved it underground. And um, and it, gritty has more of a it, it doesn't just mean dirty. There's more no, of a, there's a mentality yeah. to the people there. The people are rough. The people are it's old New York. It's get out of my way. I have to get to my train. <laughs> Uh, you're, you are standing right where I need to be. You get shoved in Penn Station. It's it is it's a mentality. It's not just the fact that the place is usually filthy, um, and there's a lot of uh, vagrancy still uh, very present in Penn Station, and um, it seems like Penn Station now has encapsulated all the things that Dennis was talking about. You know, all the things that was sort of more widespread in Manhattan has moved into. Uh, into the station itself and there's still so much of the old station left in the current Penn Station that it's sort of fascinating to see how the layers of history kind of overlap in that spot uh, so it, it is it's a real nod to old New York even though it's considered the newer Penn Station All right do you have a favorite place my favorite place in Penn Station right at, as you come out of the one two three right on the LIRR concourse um if you look up on the ceiling, there's a installation art sculpture by Maya Lin. And for people who don't know, Maya Lin was the artist who uh, did the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. The LIRR uh, commissioned her when they redid the concourse in the mid-90s to put this uh, installation in. It's called Eclipse. And it's two discs built into the ceiling that run on sort of inertia. And on every 48th hour at midnight, they eclipse each other. And there's this beautiful formation of light that comes from the ceiling down onto the floor. And absolutely nobody knows about it. I have taken now, I would say, close to 200 people on this tour. And most of the people on the tour are lifelong New Yorkers. And I take them on the tour and I say, everybody, look up. Did you know that was there? I would say 95% of them say, absolutely not. I had no idea that was there. Well, isn't that because they're busy New Yorkers? They're getting through well, I mean, station, look, look you know? it's at the LIRR concourse. It's right out the one, two, three. Who's looking up at the ceiling? <laughs> absolutely nobody. Right. But I think it really is just such an interesting spot in such a strange location. <laughs> Yet, if that, I mean, when people walk through Grand Central, when you walk through that main terminal there, all you see are people looking up looking at that up, ceiling. Correct. Looking right. at stars in the right. ceiling. Right. And uh, even if you're a daily commuter from Westchester or Connecticut, I think you, you, you're aware of that. And every once in a while, you might look up as well. So it takes people out of the state who, who appreciate it and Lifelong New Yorkers are sort of trying to get to where they got to go. Exactly. Right. Right. Low ceilings do not uh, <laughs> yeah. promote people. Yes, there, there's no inspiration <laughs> in, in basements. Uh, Justin, what are you most nervous about bringing this play to the stage? Anything? Nervous. Nervous. Oh. Um, I, you know what I'm very nervous about is that people just think it's a show about Penn Station, and it's it's not. We've obviously heavily marketed Penn Station as part of the show, but... This is really a story about two gentlemen who are completely opposite people who form a friendship. Uh, and they are both people who have lost a lot in their lives and sort of needed each other at that time. And they didn't realize it and they don't realize it um, until the very end of the show. And the way that it unfurls, I'm not giving anything away. OK, um, got to come see the play. Yeah, no, definitely. It's it's a very interesting process to how they get to that point. But um I want people to know that it's just not a Penn Station show. We're not going to hit you over the head all the time with it. That's I think that's my only uh, 
spot of nervousness. But I think you described it perfectly. You said Penn Station is a character Correct. in the play along with Joseph and Paul. Correct. Penn Station is the third character on stage. Your first opening was Friday. How'd it go? Oh, it was spectacular. It was great. We had a sold out house. And what do you think the audience walked away with when they left the eternal space? Uh, two things. Uh, for me, a, a deeper appreciation for friendship and a deeper appreciation for the architecture and the city that we love here in New York. Dennis? Um, just what Justin said, and also I know that for our first two nights, we had incredible support from our network and our Fordham community. And I'd have to say that I'd say everyone walked away very proud of Justin and his product. For those of us who didn't get to go on opening night, where can we find tickets? You know, where are you performing? How can we get there and see the eternal space? All right. So we are at the Lion Theater at Theater Row, which is on West 42nd Street. Um, you Do can we have to take Penn Station to get there? You can if you want. The, you, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. You can take a cab. You can take the ACE, the one, two, three. Um, you do have to walk through Times Square. You have to walk through Times Square, unfortunately. It's on the other side. But, yeah, so we are at the Lion Theater and uh, Theater Row, and you can go to theeternalspace.com for information about tickets. Uh, we have a tickets and performance page, or you go to telecharge.com and uh, just search the Eternal Space. My thanks to playwright and producer Justin Rivers and producer Dennis McCarthy. Thank you, Robin. Thank you very Thank much, you. Robin. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Well, I...